Welcome to the Brown Posey Press Show, part of the Books Big Network, a program dedicated to independent and self-published authors. This show will examine new and unique works of literature, learn about their creators, and discuss the industry. And now your host, Tori Gates. If you're a fan of mysteries and you frequent book fairs and events across the Mid-Atlantic region, no doubt you've come across books dealing with Agatha Christie's, among others. Peschel Press is the trade name for Bill and Teresa Peschel. Bill is a Pulitzer Prize-winning editor and has made a detailed series of annotated works on the novels of Christie and Dorothy Sayers. He's chronicled early forms of fan fiction, stories about Holmes, his brother Mycroft, Mark Twain, and Irene Adler. In addition, the Peschels host Murder, She Watched, reviews of Christie film adaptations, which we're going to talk about. Teresa Peschel also publishes books on sewing and preparedness and her own science fiction works, the Steps of Mars series. I am with Bill and Teresa right now, somewhere in a land called Chocolate Town, in a book-lined bunker with... Their cats hopefully will come in or out. Welcome both, and thank you for having me here. Oh, hi, Tori. It's always such a great joy to uh, to be talking to somebody other than Bill, because, my God, he must be so relieved to have me talk to someone else. <laughs> and, now, let's and, not get into our marital <laughs> trouble so early. We can talk about that later. <laughs> well, well, one thing I do want to say is that, yes, I do write science fiction romance, but I don't write it as Teresa Peschel. I write it as Odessa Moon. And I wanted to make sure I had that right from you. Yes. And, by the way, as I said, I do write science fiction romance, but not I Was the Alien's Love Slave. I do not write in that <laughs> subgenre. I'm sorry to tell you that, folks. I just can't bring myself to write about that gleaming, scaled body, even though it would make me buckets of money. But no, the Christie. So over to you, dear. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to say we're not in it for the money. We're just in it for the art. Which is because we don't. Make money. money. Yeah, we believe that. I've got a, I've got a Hershey Park uh, sign to sell you. If you like. <laughs> we well, would like to make some money, and maybe someday we will. Well, isn't that isn't that it? I mean, I think we were talking beforehand, and part of me almost wishes I'd rolled tape on some of that, but we probably would get sued for some of the things that we said. Yeah, afraid so. But the main thing really is, you know, we are all doing our books, our stories, our. Our, our, the things we follow. You yeah. know, we do this because we love it and because we, we've always had a good time with it. And, you know, if we sell a few, it's nice. And if not, well, hey, at least we did it, right? Yeah. Yes. And the books are out there. You know, right. Bill has worked on the uh, Sherlock Holmes fan fiction from 1888 through 1930. It's the most complete compilation of Sherlock Holmes fan fiction that you'll ever see. And because he went to the trouble of collecting it all and annotating it all and putting it in book form, it's there if anyone wants it. Mm -hmm. You know, if you were, if it, it is there, instead of having to go uh, trolling through a thousand libraries, microfilm records, instead you can go to, uh, you know, a local bookstore and order it, or you can go to Amazon and you can get all the Sherlock Holmes stuff that was just completely gone. And and I think that that's important. That's important because it's this little pieces of history that would otherwise be lost. It, it is a part of our history, and it is probably... Is it the earliest form of fan fiction? Because you hear about that all the time. It's not the earliest, because actually, I think even as far back as like uh, Jane Eyre and uh, the Brontes, you had small forms of it being being written. Okay. But I think Sherlock was probably the first time that you had a real extensive um, 
a compilation of, of people kind of spontaneously doing this because in the the first volume which is the victorian era it's a 300 page book and it covers about 10 years after that i had to break it down to five year increments because there was that much more out there and i'm pretty sure we haven't we haven't collected all of it. Oh, yes. And you've only got basically what's in the English-speaking world. You did a few yeah. translations, and I know you got at least one Russian one in there. But Sherlock was such a worldwide phenomena that people were writing Russia, in Germany, in um, in France. Yeah. And who has bothered to collect that? Yeah, in fact, there's one... I was looking it up not too long ago. It was an actual novel published in 1913... And it was like Scandinavian, Danish, something like that. It's actually been published, but it's never been translated into English. And I only found this out like a month or so ago. Oh, and didn't we also spot that on File 770, you know, Greek fan fiction oh, for Sherlock Holmes? That's Is that the one? The one? Greek. Yes, Greek. The Prime Minister, something about the Prime Minister case. So Sherlock is probably what put fan fiction on the map. Yeah. Well, you have the. It's a combination of also the economic changes where you have newspapers that have this voracious maw that had to be filled. And they would fill it with fiction. They would fill it, of course, with nonfiction. Some of it actually true. And they would also, if somebody was uh, desperate to make money, they would write a Sherlock Holmes parody. There was uh, one guy, he would write one every day. And it was like five, 10 years, 15 years worth. And it's just short little parodies. Uh, it's not really worth reading, but it filled the space and he got paid for it. Well, yeah, I want to get into this as as we go along, and I know both of you can give me an awful lot on this. Um, I can talk forever. I just want you to know that. <laughs> I don't think we have enough battery space for that. So oh, we we'll should. Just, we'll run out of power before that. <laughs> I won't. <laughs> well, I've got to ask this now. Uh, one thing I always like to ask is about the history of folks. Uh, where did the road begin, literary-wise, for each of you, like, separately and together? Now, you, Bill, worked as a, uh, you worked as an editor, and Teresa, you had, you were in the Navy? Yes, I was in the Navy. I was a housewife. I worked in department stores. And although I've always been, it never occurred to me to write them down, which is why I do not have a beach house in Kauai right now, even as we speak. <laughs> but if I had started writing things down in high school, things would be different. But no, I started writing at around 20. 13 because my sister gave me a laptop that did not like south florida uh too much uh, salt air mm -hmm. and uh, so i had a laptop and bill needed a website fodder and i started writing and here i am now with a number of published books yeah and it's actually surprising i think you've you've already well passed your million words because you've you just started writing and of course i'm down here putting books together i'm not sure what she's doing oh i have i have so much material on my computer and that's why you need to do backups again yeah uh, i know that feeling it, i have yeah. so much material on my computer and eventually i hope if i really get myself in gear i will actually transform it into finished stories that other people can read but i didn't really start writing things down until i was 54 and i'm 63 now mm -hmm. and bill you're editing your your editing skills just fit into the what you are doing as a compiler. But where were you before all this? Yeah, when I was growing up, the about the only thing that really interested me was journalism. 
Um, you know, I did various things as well, other things as well. But uh, I wanted to work for a newspaper. I was a copy boy at the Charlotte Observer in 75, Okay, back when they actually had copy boys. 15-year-old copy 15 boys year old to copy run around boy. in the newsroom. <laughs> That's right. I could do this. And I ended up going to uh, Chapel Hill and got a journalism degree and then discovered that I really didn't like being a reporter. I didn't like going up to people and asking them questions. Yes, it's that. See, a reporter has to have the kind of skin to go up to you and say, so tell me, Tori, how did you feel when you came home and found the raped and mutilated corpse of your mother, your daughter, and all seven cats spread out across the floor of your room? And don't spare the details. And, you know, not everyone can do that. I cannot. I am a person that has had to put a microphone in people's faces, and I, over this past however many years I've done this, you have to learn by reading a person whether or not they really want to talk to you, and I've not always done it very well. And this goes for news or for music or for anything else. If somebody doesn't want to talk to you, you have to realize that they're going to say no comment. And you have to really be careful how you question them. And you have to at least have, I think, a certain amount of decency and politeness. And some of my colleagues are really good at it. They know how to talk to someone and they know how to push, how to pull. And most of them don't, Mark. And there are times when I get that feeling of don't approach, not like this. And don't ask that question or, you know... You, you, you know, and then because then it becomes okay. Maybe I get the story, or when I come back, my editor's on the phone with someone, and they slam the phone down and says, "I just got off the phone with the publisher. What the hell did you do?" <laughs> Which is why Bill is an e a copy editor and a layout person. Well, that's what I ended up doing because I I, I did other jobs for a while, and then managed to get onto a small newspaper in South Carolina, and I mm -hmm. was on the copy desk, so I could edit. I learned layout. I learned Photoshop. And also, I was running the book page because I could write reviews. Yep. And it was pretty moribund. And I started writing and sending out clips to New York. And soon they were sending me truckloads of books. And I didn't realize just what a good gig it was <laughs> until I was uh, submitting like four to $5,000 worth of books to the library because we had no room for them. Oh, yeah. It was amazing. It was amazing. I, I had no idea that the publishing industry would just send you books if you were a reviewer. And they did. Even if you were a reviewer at a small newspaper in South Carolina. Mm -hmm. yeah. And and along the way, I've always wanted to write. I've always wanted... And I, see, I would that, work he's on, different from me that way. Bill has always wanted yeah, to write. always wanted to write, I've, but I was always having trouble doing it and, ha and getting it finished. I have plenty of busted books. And part, along the way, I was collecting stories about writers and the fun they got up to. And that mm -hmm. was partly his curiosity um, of just where their source of creativity came from, how did they live, and also it was like dirt, like collecting dirty stories, <laughs> you know. So, so when uh, you know you find out that Dashiell Hammett hired a Chinese prostitute to break up S.J. Perlman's marriage so he could <laughs> take his wife, and I'm thinking, was wow! It, I thought it was the other way around. I no, thought S.J. I thought Hammett. S. Oh, it was Dashiell who did that. I yeah. thought it was S.J. who did that. No. 
And this is that. this is one of the stories in the book Writers Gone Wild. That's right. Yeah. And it was actually the first one was the George Bernard Shaw story when he fell in love. He was a virgin until he met uh, Jenny Patterson, who was a 40-year-old cougar who took him in hand, you might say. And he was like 18 or 19 and basically poor and trying to make a living. And he charmed her and she charmed him. And then he decided to move on and she wasn't having any of that and started turning it slowly into what uh fatal uh, attraction fatal attraction <laughs> yes yeah, as long as she didn't boil any bunnies she <laughs> was uh, they were okay yeah she didn't do that it took a while to pry them pry apart and there was and that that book in itself has so many interesting stories and it's like you see people that you recognize that any reader if they pick up that it's like ernest hemingway did some things yeah why did so and why did sylvia plath bite ted hughes mm-hmm. and it was a sign right from the beginning that this was not going to be an easy relationship. Well, but they, yeah. they didn't pay attention, and well, well, reading reading Sylvia's uh, letters and reading her diary, her voluminous diary entries, I have read them, or at least I've burned through a fair number of them, and the writings leading up to the meeting make it very clear that she had a bit of an obsession for this man and this was unusual because she had pretty much made it clear she wasn't going to get married she didn't really want to and all of a sudden ted became from reading his work she realized this man is a genius and this is someone that I've got to know. And it's never real one that is in the book Red Comet, which recently came out, which is Plath's uh, biography, and it is is brilliantly done. And it's very sad, and it's very painful, because you can tell that throughout Sylvia's life, here's a very tortured young lady who may have been set up to you know, become something that maybe she wasn't ready for yet. Well, that's what that's what interested me most about these writers is just how talent does not necessarily lead to happiness. Uh, in fact, it could be the other way around, especially if you're famous too early and you have a reputation to live up to. You know, the stresses of being outside in the world and who you encounter and what happens to you out there it was just an endless source of fascination for me. And it ended up that... After a while, and I tried formulating a book, like a 365-day calendar, that sort of thing, and I Mm -hmm. couldn't get agents interested in it. And finally I said, well, I'll give up, but since I have this website, because we're talking about the late 90s, Mm -hmm. I'll just write posts based on this material and put them up. I'll just write these stories and put them up. And actually what I was also doing was fooling myself. Okay. Because I didn't say, oh, I'm going to write a book. I just said, I'm just going to post essays. So I leveraged myself and got around the uh, the mental blocks mm-hmm. to do this. And by the time, um, after a couple of months, or I can't remember now, six or seven months, I had half the book written. Yeah, and then you, um, I think you finished it before you started shopping it. And yeah, I had Rita mo- took I you had on and, and, and was, you got a contract. Yeah, but actually it was also meeting Jonathan Mayberry at pen writers because he actually he gave a talk about how you write a proposal oh that's right because we were already up here right that's right and and you were doing a lot with pen writers at the time yeah right and he actually said i have here copies of my proposals here's one for a nonfiction book here's one for a fiction book i'll oh, give wow. a copy to everybody and i said yo <laughs> over here and i took his format for the nonfiction book and basically plugged writers gone wild into it 
and start. And I finally said, okay, I'm going to go down the list. I have a hundred agents. And again, this is a matter of finding the right structure to, to get me to do something is mm-hmm. to say, I'll have a hundred agents. If they all say this sucks, don't do this. Okay. This is what the heavens told me. I actually have this idea because I didn't want to sit here for the next five years flogging this because we're talking about 2009. So I've been basically collecting this stuff since 1985. It was a long time. It, it was, was before long, we ever met. It was a long, long time. Wow. And, and I have a, a file cabinet <coughs> drawer down there in the office here full of material. Actually, have, it's two two drawers. Yeah. And, and in fact, this is a great way to write for people who are... Um, uh, nonfiction writers, it's, it's called writing by file folder. And what you do is you acquire the material, you write up the little pieces, and you put them in the file folder, and the file folder remembers for you. Yeah. So and by number 32 or 33, Rita Rosencrantz came in and said, yeah, I'll represent you for the book. And she turned it around. And that was also the case where I found um, in Publishers Weekly an agent at Penguin, not an agent, an editor at Penguin who was looking for pop culture books. And I said, I told Rita, hey, this this woman's looking for it. And she went to him and sold it to her. Excellent. Got me money for it. Yeah, yeah. And we will never earn out. But that's okay. We got our money up front. (laughs) Well, we're going to talk more about the Casebook series in part two of our program. I am speaking with Bill and Teresa Peschel. This is the Brown Posey Press Show. Stay with us. Sunbury Press Books brings you the work of independent authors. If fiction, whether historical, murder mysteries, or spy thrillers take your fancy, check out Milford House Press. Releases of interest include the J.R. Lindermuth series, including Fallen from Grace, The Hawthorne Inheritance by Kate Dyke Blair, Reasonable Doubts by Donald Dewey, or the Alexa Williams series by Sherry Knowlton. Explore by clicking on the Milford House tab at sunburypress.com. We're back, and I am speaking with Bill and Teresa Peschel, and we are about to get into the 223B Casebook series, which takes us down Baker Street. And you've given me some of the background, Bill, about what you were finding. And as we were saying, this kind of fiction about Holmes and the potential contemporaries he had... There's so much of this, and how did it come about to, like, how do you pick the ones that are going to make the books or make these essays that you were talking about? Generally, there wasn't much in the way of picking, because... I thought you put them all in. I pretty much put them all in, yes, unless uh, there was uh, something that was just really terrible, or if it's somebody who (laughs) wrote a number of parodies, I would just pick one. Or we had to pay uh, extensive royalties, because wasn't there an A.A. Milne, and they wanted like 500 bucks for a two-page story, and we said no? Yeah, that was, yeah. There were some that was just like, uh, oh, well, well, 50 bucks, and send me a copy of the book, and it's like, okay, you can do that. That in itself is nice. Now, I've I've had the same thing with music lyrics. It's like... Oh, uh, those are... Those are, boy, those are terrible. They're terrible people. (laughs) They used to be, well, it depends on who you talk with. It used to be fairly cheap to just get a very simple license. And most people have never had ever, I've had, I've had music publishers tell me we have never had anybody ask to put lyrics in a book before. We don't even know how to do this. That's weird because I've heard other stories. I guess it depends on who you ask. Who you're talking to. And they'll say, oh yeah, a thousand dollars. Yeah. Well, yeah. And it's, um. Sometimes, though, if you ask nicely, a songwriter will just say, yeah, go ahead and use it. Just just credit my name on, your, in, on the flyleaf, and I'm good with that. Mm. Uh, some music publishers, it didn't used to be that expensive, really. Mm-hmm. And then they jacked the prices up. 
And then it became, all right, I am going to need to write better. I either need to write my own lyrics, which I have started to do, or I need to rewrite these scenes, which I usually do. And that was a great test for me because the Sweet Dream series had lyrics all through it. And then I realized this is not original enough. So I just took songs that I'd already written for my old band or for myself. And then I wrote new ones. And unless I really absolutely like you've got to have lyrics for Sweet Home Chicago. Okay, fine. Well, when we were doing the when Bill was collecting the uh, fiction for the Sherlock Holmes. Right. Of course, the vast majority of the people we've dealt with were dead and had been for a long time. And whatever literary agents they had were also dead, so it didn't matter. Right. You know, when, when you're looking at uh, stories that were published in uh, 1912, that was a long time ago, and it's all in the public domain. The, what I found... <clears throat> What I found most interesting about this, because I was Bill's editor, and I will still—I will be honest—I still haven't actually sat down and read maybe only two actual Sherlock Holmes writ stories written by Conan Doyle. But I have sure read a lot of parody fiction because I had to edit all <laughs> that stuff. Is how differently people would see Sherlock Holmes, and I really believe that one of the reasons why he has become so iconic today is because. There was so much fan fiction that even when Conan Doyle didn't write anything, he stayed constantly in the public eye. Yes. And the fan fiction, whether they were using Sherlock to comment on uh, women's su uh, suffragettes or uh, the new motor cars or teaching you how to use your ham radio or mm -hmm. to sell linoleum, all of which are stories <laughs> yeah. I have read, they formulated this image of Sherlock Holmes, and that's why you can put Daffy Duck in a deerstalker in a meerschaum pipe, and anyone in the world will recognize, oh, that's Sherlock Holmes, even if they have, no, they have no idea who Conan Doyle is, and they certainly have never read a Sherlock Holmes uh, short story. But they see Daffy Duck in that iconic uniform. They made yep. him an archetype. Mm -hmm. And you can look at Hercule Poirot, who is an extremely well-known detective, but there's no real image. <coughs> Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes is an archetype. He made that leap. And the fan fiction helped make him ma helped make that leap because you saw Sherlock everywhere. Yeah, it reinforced the image even when Conan Doyle wasn't writing or when Sherlock was dead. And and it's fun to look at some of these covers, the Victorian parodying uh, drawings, these they caricatures. Are, yeah, they, they are were, period for each book, and right. Sherlock had a thousand different images. Yeah, because the one for Victorian was done by was done for Punch. This was a cycle of mm -hmm. stories by R.C. Lehman, who was an Oxford fellow. Is that where that image came from? Yeah, that's from, yeah, that's uh, uh, from the cycle of stories. He wrote 17 stories and basically kind of parodied Sherlock Holmes throughout his throughout the throughout the life he did like the initial 12 and then whenever sherlock popped up again he would do a parody for it and uh popped it into punch and some of those are not always very flattering of Holmes. <laughs> oh no oh no some of them are very very negative towards Holmes, and certainly a lot of them make uh dr watson even more of an idiot than uh than Watson was never an idiot in the Conan Doyle stories, but my God, in some of the parodies, he 
has all of the intelligence of an amoeba. Yeah, (laughs) he was a faithful dog, and everything Sherlock did was absolutely wonderful, and that was... Well, it's it's interesting too because if you if you read some of them, like in Hound of the Baskervilles, which is my favorite novel of them all, yeah. and that one wanted him to be throughout, and how they showed him in the movies, you know, he's a right, he's a forthright but not self righteous guy who wants to do the right thing. He wants to back Holmes, and sometimes just comes off as incredibly clueless and naive when he realizes that. Holmes has just done an end run around him, and now he feels a bit abused. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But he also enjoyed it when he was wounded and Sherlock took care of him. Mm-hmm. And he actually saw the actually uh, Conan Doyle writes about seeing the mask slip a bit and actually seeing him and being. So it's and that's the other thing about these stories. And it's another reason why Sherlock Sherlock would not have existed if the stories were not really well written. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of logical improbabilities. There's all kinds of plot holes. You could just, you know, zoologists would talk about snakes cannot smell. They don't, they cannot hear. They don't respond to sound, you know, but it's the story itself is just, is wonderful. The and, story is what makes it work. Well, if you read, there's the rivals of Sherlock Holmes. There's an actual collection of authors who have written books that were contemporaneous to Holmes and they just don't have that. They don't have that magic. Right. You know, this is why we can still read these stories because it's literally a time machine. And that's what um, the the um, the Sherlock Holmes fan fiction collection that we have, you know, you see how good Conan Doyle was, even though this was for him throwaway writing. Conan Doyle never liked Sherlock Holmes. You know, he, he, he tolerated Holmes and he brought him back only when he needed the money. Um, he wanted us all to be reading Sir Nigel and the White Company. Right. And his first literary success was were historical novels, not, mm-hmm. not, not, but, and then of course he comes to be known best as the man who created the great detective. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which drove yeah. him nuts. <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, he is an amazing, prolific, and energetic fellow. There's and an actual, real energizer bunny. It's amazing. There's a book called The a Chronology of Conan Doyle's Life. And day by day, you're looking through this year in and year out. He is attending meetings. He's traveling. He's lecturing. He's writing. It, 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 he just never stopped. He just had this bundle of energy and that kind of energy is what drives a lot of authors and that's where i understand the ones who are most prolific they have that what we call an energizer bunny in them it's also why i am not as prolific because i just don't simply don't have that battery that it's just going oh yeah i'm not an energizer bunny either i get stuff done but not like conan doyle did Mm. my goodness that man was a a machine getting up you know bright and early every morning and working 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 until he you know went to bed at a respectable hour and the next day he did it all over again and that's that's his personality you would think and it's it's interesting because we all have our own different styles of uh of of it and i'm a person that just kind of i have to prepare for the battle that is to come which is to write the the rough draft of my next piece and i keep in and quite often i'm i'm getting ready to do the next book in the sweet dream series but now i've got this other idea and it's like they're both sitting there mocking me and they're (laughs) and they're like okay what are you gonna do well always remember ideas are cheap (laughs) finished work is expensive ideas are cheap i mean they 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 heap up in heaps you have to kick 
them out of the way as you walk through the room. Yes. I could give you 10 ideas in the next 30 seconds, <laughs> um, but turning them into a book, that's harder. One thing that I must ask now about was one of the fun things that, that comes from, from people like Sherlock Holmes is you can intersperse him and Dr. Watson and Professor Moriarty into other times and they just seem to fit and it, it's kind of and I, I mean we see that in fan fiction but we also just see it in our own imaginations of what if we move this guy here the casebook of Twain and Holmes now did Doyle and Mark Twain ever actually meet no surprisingly they didn't for such public men and especially because tw- I actually looked this up because I was kind of curious. They were both world travelers, yes. and travelers, they still managed never. not to meet. Yeah, and there's not really any instance as far as whether Conan Doyle has read Twain or Twain has read uh, Conan Doyle, although he did write a parody, a double-barreled mystery. Yeah, Twain wrote a parody of Conan Doyle. Of, of, of Sherlock, which I've got in, got in one of the books as well. So, no, they never met. Um I would guess that they probably did read each other's stuff. I mean, Mark Twain had to have read enough Sherl- enough Conan Doyle to write the parody. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what I thought, I, I'm very proud of Bill for the work that he did on that, but he wrote the stories in Mark Twain's own voice, fitting them into the gaps in Mark Twain's own life, and at the same time played the game with the canon, so it fits into the Sherlock Holmes canon, which is one of the reasons why it took you so darn long. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> To just do seven stories, you know. That's that's one of those things. It's just I can't. I don't know. It's like go big or go home. It's, it's yeah. Where it's where it's not just. And I'm a Mark Twain fan, and I've read a lot of his material. Read a lot of his books. I've got them on you know on my Kindle still, and then I'll just pull them up. And yeah, the idea came of trying to integrate the two worlds, and what would that be like? Because of course, of course, Mark Twain would never discuss meeting Irene Adler, Adler when she handed his, her his ass to her. <laughs> you know, the uh, uh, he made she made a fool of him, just like um, you know Watson did. Of course, he's never going to discuss these things in his autobiography. There was, in fact, this popped up in um, Agatha Christie. She watched. You know, Mark Twain was very open in his autobiography, and he met Errol. Eleanor Glynn. Oh, right. And he did not discuss it, what they talked about <laughs> in his autobiography. And for those of you kids at home who don't know, Eleanor Glynn was famous, notorious for what she wrote back, you know, she seven. Was a racy author for the 1910s. <laughs> for the 1910s. And there's a famous poem about her. Would you like to sin with Eleanor Glynn on a tiger skin, or would you prefer to err with her on some other kind of fur? And when Mark Twain wrote his autobiography, he didn't tell you, he did not reveal what he and Eleanor Glynn discussed. <laughs> So even he, even Mark Twain, occasionally would pull back and say, "You know, I don't want to talk about this." Yeah, a hundred years from now, when everybody's dead, he just he didn't want to do it then. <laughs> even well. then, wow. Well, we've got to shift gears into Agatha Christie and the interesting thing that you did and i mean i knew about it from looking at your website and then i started looking at your instagram feed and i began seeing follow us folks 
<laughs> yeah, well, I saw the production. I, I was I was most intrigued by the production of Agatha Christie, Murder, She Watched, this whole thing where you were sitting down and watching all of these adaptations. 201 of them. And we're still working through the foreign adaptations. We're almost finished. Almost finished with the Chinese version, and we're going to have to watch it all again because their subtitling was terrible. <laughs> and what I loved was how you set it up. You set it up like you were you're throwing a party with your cats. Yeah, here's what we're eating tonight. Here's what we're going to be drinking while we watch this. And your very honest and frank views of some of these movies. Some and, of them are truly terrible. And. This is something that my late mother would have absolutely been fascinated by because, as I said earlier, she loved all things Agatha Christie. She loved the movies. She loved watching them on the rare occasion they would come on television. And she would be very interested in how how was Poirot uh, dealt with in this? How do they, uh, you know, how do they depict him here? Do we get to see some of his foibles, some of the things about him that make him a better character, mm-hmm. not just the mustache-twirling guy. And um, tell us about the watching events. And this book, I mean, this thing is a good inch and a half thick here. It's 400 yes. pages, 400 plus pages. Yeah, this is Agatha Christie, She Watched, and I'll read out the title. It is Agatha Christie, She Watched, One Woman's Plot to Watch 201, and yes, folks, I did watch them all, Agatha Christie movies without murdering the director, screenwriter, cast, or her husband. And some Sometimes Bill and I would, uh, but in the end, it's my bookie-wookie, and so it's my, my point of view as to how I rate them. But it's been really educational. I've seen 13 Poirots, 7 Miss Marples, 5 sets of Tommy and Tuppence, 10 versions of And Then There Were None, including a Bollywood version with singing and dancing. <laughs> And, uh, you know, the rest of the Christie's and then Agatha the Star. I've seen three different explanations for what Agatha did during her 11-day disappearance. And I have to say, folks, the Doctor Who episode came the closest to reality. Wow. You know she's fighting a giant space wasp. But it tur- this giant <laughs> space wasp turns up later on in Death in the Air. It's so obvious and the same thing with wasps nest even though that was a remarkably dopey story and they had real issues when they filmed it for david suchet but it's been really amazing and there's always something to like about every film even the truly dreadful ones because you're still getting great english country house porn like in um uh the secret of chimneys where itv inserted miss marple into a non-marple property and sometimes that really works and sometimes it really doesn't you know shot at hatfield house which is also where uh the wonder woman movie was filmed they had a scene there some kind of party and apparently it's used for a lot of It's been used for a lot of movies for the last uh, 50 years. Yeah, we've we've seen a lot of English country houses now (laughs) as a result of the Agatha Christie project. And the even what it does is it keeps her in front of the public eye. And that is so critical. And I don't believe that Agatha Christie is given enough respect for how she wrote. She was a really good writer. That's mm-hmm. why she's still being read today. But she wrote genre and she was a woman writing genre and she made a lot of money and she sold a lot of books and I think that there is a certain layer of the literary establishment that just can't 
tolerate that, that she is selling lots and lots of books when they, with their twee literary novel, which is so delicate and so dainty and so refined, <laughs> oh my god, I expect, I look into the human spirit, and they sell like, you know, six copies a year. I am a study of the human condition or something. <laughs> yes, why on That's earth it. would you want to read that when you could read the ABC Murders, which is a proto serial killer novel complete with a a uh, a villain taunting Poirot taunting the police with his next crime remember she wrote this in 1936 folks mm-hmm. and then at the at the uh, climax you realize you swallowed the biggest red herring ever mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you swallowed it completely just like you did with Roger Ackroyd she really writes in a wide variety of genres. Her short stories are all over the map. Lots of paranormal that you don't expect. Uh, in her novels, they aren't all Poirot. They, uh, they're not all Miss Marple. There's only 12 Miss Marple novels. Mm-hmm. And, or, or you get something like The Man in the Brown Suit, which we annotated and is a really fun novel. It is actually a romantic thriller with two narrators, one of whom is unreliable, and there is a scene, she wrote this in 1924, and there is a scene that you romance fans have seen in 10,000 romance novels where Anne Bedingfield has a sexy stranger break into her cabin in the middle of the night while on the cruise ship, and he's injured, and she has to tend to his wounds. And even though Agatha doesn't go into detail, anyone who's ever done any kind of nursing or taking done any health care whatsoever, you know she took his shirt off and has her hands on his manly chest. And yes, this is Agatha Christie in 1924. Ahead of her time in every way. She was! Well, what is? And then there were none but a slasher flick. Oh mm-hmm. my god, it is a slasher flick. Ten oh. people isolated on an island getting bumped off one after another. And in the various French horrifying version, ways. The French version that came out like two years ago, they were ten, is and what it's called. It was it, a slasher it, they flick. Ramped, they ramped it up. Oh my god. The <laughs> Russian version. The Russian one is probably the closest to the text, although it eliminates the, um, uh, the police investigation at the end of the novel um since we're on the subject of and then there were none there they're actually the, the 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 films tend to follow one of two sources they either follow the stage play which agatha rewrote and retconned the two most villainous characters to turn them into our hero and our heroine and that would be vera claythorne child murderer and <laughs> And um, Philip Lombard, who abandoned his men to die in the bush in Africa, and they become our hero and heroine. Most of the films follow the stage play, but not all. A few of them follow the novel, and some of them, like the Sarah Phelps, she actually combines the stage play and the novel, aspects Mm. of both. And that, you know, again, this is what's so fascinating about watching this is you can see the permutations that, uh, uh, that's probably not the right word, but she, Agatha really thought about her characters. She, they are, the books deceive you because they, the, the writing looks so simple, mm-hmm. but it's really not. And it rewards rereading. They do reward rereading. And, People also have this idea that she wrote in a vacuum, which she did not. So, like, there's a novel called The Mystery of the Seven Dials. The movie is 
ridiculous and silly and funny. And you don't realize that when she wrote this in like 1929, she was actually writing a mashup. And yes, folks, Agatha did do this. She was writing a mashup of P.G. Woodhouse and John Buchan thrillers. Oh, wow. And that is The Secret of the Seven Dials. And you, again, you swallow these red herrings one after the other. And then at the end, at the climax, you realize how completely she fooled you. Absolutely, completely fooled you. And this novel doesn't get any love. Mm. Because it just doesn't. But it's a fun novel. And it's a fun movie. We have an amazing picture in our... Uh, is, that's the picture with the, everybody sitting around the table with the, the clock secret, faces. Yeah, the, the secret the, society with the, the clock faces. society, and they all have hoods with clocks on the front. <laughs> and it looks really odd. It, it does. looks almost <laughs> like surrealism there. It's, it's so fun. It mm-hmm. is so fun. You know, her books are just full of, of passion and uh, hate and uh, the need for money. Very rarely does anybody get killed just because, oh, I just felt like it. It's nearly always because I hate you or I love you or I need the money. Very, very intense emotions. We are speaking with Bill and Teresa Peschel, and we are about to shift gears to another person who will enter the uh, secret lair here on the Brown Posey Press Show. Stay with us. Explore Sunbury Press books and find the work of talented authors in many genres. Ars Metaphysica is our spiritual, new age, and metaphysical imprint. Check out Pettengill's Perfect Fortune Teller and Dream Book by Pelatiya Pettengill. The Space Between by Judith Bowen and works by Kareem El Kusa, including The Phoenician Code. Find out more by clicking on the Books tab at sunburypress.com. We have been speaking with Bill and Teresa Peschel on their numerous uh, different endeavors, the examinations of Agatha Christie and uh, Mark Twain and Sherlock Holmes, Arthur Conan Doyle and all that. We are now going to invite Odessa Moon into the room, the author of the Step series, three very intriguing tales as we now veer into science fiction. And we have to begin with the first of the series, Bride of Darapaska, who take us to the steps of Mars. Mars. Yes. The steps of Mars. A colonization, politics. Tell us where this comes from. <laughs> well, I have um, read a lot of science fiction over the years. I've read a lot of romance over the years. And I have to say that with the science fiction, the vast majority of science fiction writers never, ever clearly have raised children, nor have they ever actually cooked or grown food in any way, shape, or form. And I've when when you think about Mars, you have to realize that you're talking about a ball of sand that has no fossil fuels. And what does that do to a culture? You know, a culture can only work with the energy that it has. And so I started thinking about Mars. Uh, the idea just appeared to me, one of the many plot bunnies that bounce around me like overactive little rabbits, and you just have to kick them out of the way. But it just started i just started thinking about what mars would be like what people would actually do and i sat down and started writing and i wrote i have a million words on my computer and then i walked away from all of those million words setting up mars and went back 30 years <laughs> into the past and wrote the bride from Darapaska. i wanted to think about what people's life would actually be like on a colony that was set up 
to generate wealth for old earth. So I look at the class divide, I look at colonization, I look at the roles of women, and but I really want to tell a story about people and how people cope. And I'm sorry, I'm sounding like I'm just going all over the map here. No, you're doing fine. But Bride really is the first novel that I really finished, The uh, other than the one I submitted to RWA, which I will get out someday. Um, I wanted to tell Debbie's story, and she is a peasant out on the steps, and if you are a peasant or if you live low on the food chain, you know, you know viscerally that someone very high up whom you will never see can make a decision that affects every aspect of your life, and you can't do one damn thing about it. You are trapped, and that is Debbie, and she is plucked from her home in Deripaska and shipped off to Shalene, which is a demance on the far side of Mars. And she is married off at 16 to a stranger because they have no, because that family desperately needs children. There are serious fertility issues on Mars as a direct result of the genetic engineering put onto the colonists, willing and unwilling, by old Earth. And she has no control. She has Mm -hmm. no control. And then, um, her life is uprooted again when the daimyo of Shalene decides that he needs to set up a village out in the middle of nowhere for no discernible reason where he sends people off to die. And her life gets worse, and she, when the, when the story opens, she has reached the end of her rope. She can't manage anymore. She can't focus anymore. She, can't, she cannot tolerate this anymore. Mm-hmm. And so she walks off into the steps to die, taking her three children and their dog with her. And they don't. And she changes the world around her in the way that a peasant can. As a result of Debbie's actions, there are riots in Deripaska. And yes, despite the presence of her three children, she was a bride. She is a bride. She Mm. becomes the bride of the land. And you are introduced to an entire world of people. And... My Mars is very, very different from a typical science fiction setup because I think about how people would actually live. And on a world with no fossil fuels, you ha- at, that is at the end of a 400 million mile supply line, if you have technology, it is because you are wealthy and you are close to the center of power. But otherwise, you are a peasant on the steppes, and you live in a world made by hand, a world of wood and stone and skin and bone. That's what forms your world. Mm-hmm. And everyone there, the, the one thing you can say about my Mars is that the citizens loathe their old Earth masters and fear the day that Mars will be terraformed enough for old earth to return and basically turn them all into the slaves that they were designed to be because that's what colonizing powers do mm-hmm. especially ones like old earth which is busy colonizing the rest of the solar system too and then i moved on from uh bride to the white elephant of pansion which is again a different part of mars with, uh, and that becomes Eric Shalene's story. He's the daimyo of Shalene, and he had a very good reason for sending Debbie and a group of peasants off to die in that little village out in the middle of nowhere. He had a reason. He was forced 
to do that. And he goes off to Panchin for the Biennial Mining Convention, and he discovers what lives beneath, because there are things that live that the colonists awoke on Mars. There are things that are there. It wasn't just a dead ball of sand. And what lives beneath is different. Even though we're talking, you know, a long time into the future, you have remnants. You you notice the the the, the uh, names are all very familiar. Yes. And it's basically cultures put into the meat grinder of history. Oh, yes. Culture's going through the meat grinder of history because one of the things that stays with the culture almost forever are names. That's why we still use names, uh, like from the Bible, that are 2,000, 3,000 years old. Names are one of the very few things that you can take with you, that you can keep, no matter what else happens to you. You know, oh, this is a family name. We had someone in, you know, every, every, the oldest son in the in the family has always been named this particular name right. uh, you know names have history and you can keep them the and, and and names when you when you take when you when you start taking your uh uh populations and you send them to another planet you're going to have a wild mix of names because you're going to have an english first name or and a a, a thai last name because you're going to have that that cultural change right. and i did want to try to show that with names the um so we have the white elephant of panchen and then we moved into um the vanished pearls of orloff and that's the third novel and i wanted to do a runaway bride story where I actually considered not just why Lanny would run off into the unknown, an 18-year-old, on her 18th birthday, why she would flee a cathedral, not be married to a wealthy, important man, and instead run off with a complete stranger she met at a livery stable. But also, what did that do to everyone else? If you've ever had a runaway bride in your story, in your family, which we actually had in my in our family. <laughs> After you wrote this, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and my sister would not let me use the uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the the rehearsal dinner. We had to have a rehearsal dinner anyway because she had paid for it, and she wouldn't let me use it as a book launch, <laughs> despite the fact that it was a runaway bride novel for a rehearsal party that was no longer for a rehearsal dinner for the wedding. Funny how she took it that way. <laughs> I don't know why, <laughs> but you never stop talking about it. The, uh, and, and, of course, uh, uh, this particular bride, she bailed 10 days before the wedding, and it's probably for the best for everyone. But you never stop talking about it. You just right. don't. And it affects everyone. And, and that affects the order. That affects the order on the planet and it, it from top to bottom, it would seem. Well, in this particular case, what Lanny does affect, will affect um, the civilized half of Mars um, for generations to come because what Lanny did you know why are people not just her family looking for her why are so many other people looking for her and it's what she did in the chapel before she fled and took up with a total stranger and rode off into the unknown what did she do Mm. and everyone has to cope with what Lanny did including herself Mm -hmm. and I have to ask the the great question of world building. You have you have built a very different Mars. And like you said, you wanted to focus on some of the things that are missing from science fiction. I am not as deep a reader of it. 
but it would seem that uh, you have you take away some of the romantic elements of of sci-fi and some of the star trekkyish kind of things you that, have to have energy everything yeah. has to be paid for with energy technology is not energy right energy is what you you do things with energy. You can build technology with energy. Technology is not an energy source. It may be an efficient way of using energy, but you still have to have that energy underneath it. And you use the hand wavium in order to get the uh, core spinning so you can actually have breathable atmosphere. And then after that, you kind of put the toy away and went, went on. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Because well, also, this Mars is designed by nerds because yes. they designed half of it. And yes. then the capital city? Yeah, the capital city is, of course, Barsoom, because <laughs> the um, Mars was essentially laid out by engineers, by romantic engineers, and they did what engineers do even today, which is you draw a line on a map and say, well, it should be this way, paying no attention whatsoever to the terrain. And mm -hmm. if you have ever looked at a map of North Dakota, they laid out North Dakota in blocks that paid very, very little attention. The counties are, are laid out uh, following latitude and longitude lines, and they actually put many of the original roads on the latitude and longitude lines. And that's why you get these odd jogs, because it's okay to run your lines, your your roads on longitudinal lines, because they're... they're uh, uh, parallel to the equator but when you follow the latitude lines or maybe i'm doing it in the wrong order but when you go the north and south lines well you know things start pushing together because of yep. the curvature of the earth mm -hmm. but if you're drawing lines on a map which is what engineers have a nasty tendency to do you are not paying attention to what those lines are actually going over top of. So all the demances though are square-ish. They're the, square. -ish. You have railroads on the demance line. That's the central government controlling yes. the area with with railroads on all the demance borders. And I set it up so that the demances, uh, and this is how you raise money: is you sell the land of a demance to an old earth to an old earth family or to an old earth uh, group of families, so that oh hey you can go to Mars and you can become essentially the king of your own kingdom with your own sets of serfs but they are divided each demand is divided from the the ones around it by government property the government owns large swaths of mars with and the, but they also control the railroads the the uh for for back and forth uh travel and moving uh goods and resources around um and as time goes, things start to change because you don't have what someone planned a hundred, you know, a thousand, five hundred years ago on another planet. Things start to change. Uh, even something as basic as I mentioned people's accents. Because if you have a large group of people and they don't have a lot of uh, interactions back and forth over time, the vocabulary and the intonations will start to shift and you won't necessarily understand what someone is saying. Even in the United States, if you're in the deep, if you're from Maine and you suddenly go down to the deep south, you're going to have a hard time understanding people when that talk to you because that's just the way it goes with people. And that's something that has never been something I've never encountered in this so it's like a real step in oh yes most science fiction assumes everybody had a babble fish inserted <laughs> into their ear well i gotta leave it right there and say 
uh, as we wrap up. What is next for you, Bill, Teresa, Odessa, and all the others? Tell me. The Escape to Hightower, which is the follow-on book to Vanished Pearls of Orloff. It will be Escape to Hightower by Odessa Moon, and that I will complete Lanny and Fenn's story. And um, lots of things happen. Lots of fun things happen. And I have a book launch coming up for Agatha Christie. She watched at the Mechanicsburg Mystery Bookstore on July 16th at 2 in the afternoon. And then the project after Agatha Christie, she watched, is going to be Murder at the Movies, when we are going to watch a 100 or so murders, murder <laughs> mysteries, but not movies like The Godfather or The Postman Always Rang Twice. They are going to be mysteries. Yeah, uh. True mysteries. And I'm working on, uh, I'll be working on finishing Man Out of Time, which is essentially a romantic comedy involving a little bit of time travel from a, with a visitor from the uh, Elizabethan era. And Kit Marlowe. Kit Marlowe. And if you think of, uh, say, my favorite year, only more violent with a lot more swordplay, that's probably what's <laughs> going to end up becoming. And where can we find your, your website, your books, all these things? Well, we're at Peschel Press, and it's P-E-S-C-H-E-L, press.com. Our books are available at all online retailers they're also available at uh, mechanicsburg mystery bookshop and covered maker books and at uh, the sherlock's are available at otto pensler's mysterious bookshop in new york city and if you want one of our books you can uh, go to one of those local bookstores you can go through our website uh, you can order from your own local bookstore through bookshop.org mm-hmm. because we also have our books available that way right most of them on uh, yeah, through Ingram Spark, not the um, complete annotated. Not the complete though. annotated for uh, various reasons. Copyright reasons, but uh, let's see. I think that's about it. But yeah, we're very easy to find. Uh, we do a newsletter that you can sign up for. That we do. Uh, I publish once a month that tells you uh, where we're going to be. And I am currently discussing direct sales for writers in oh, the as newsletter. A of fact, our appearances are at listed at our special press book site we keep those up to date so we appear at local festivals well not in time for this probably but see what we can do yeah well we but we do a lot and we're easy to find again if you look for special press p is in paul e s c h e l press we're all over so you can follow us on instagram you can look find us on facebook you can find our website and as I write the reviews of mysteries that we watch, they go up on the website, so you can see them right away. And I will leave it with that. Uh, Bill and Teresa Peschel, thank you so much for having me into your home, and thank you for your time. It's been a blast. It has been fun. It's been so fun, and, you know, feel free to come back and interview us again. <laughs> You've been listening to the Brown Posey Press Show with your host, Tori Gates. Find his works, including Searching for Roy Buchanan, Call It Love, and Shake Hands with the Devil, along with more independent authors of fiction and nonfiction at sunburypress.com. Thank you for listening. This is the BookSpeak Network. <laughs>